Well, we're going to be looking now at how the world has responded uh, to this particular cyclone Idai, which actually really devastated uh, three African countries, Mozambique, Malawi and Zimbabwe. And the World Bank has estimated the three countries still need about two billion US dollars together to recover from the devastating impact of cyclone Idai. Roughly 1,000 people were killed and lots more displaced when two major rivers in the port city of Beira burst their banks and the cyclone then moved to parts of Zimbabwe and Malawi, leaving behind a trail of devastation. The World Bank further revealed that direct economic losses from Cyclone Idai in Mozambique will range from 650 and $800 million. Meanwhile, humanitarian aid all over the world has been and continues to pour in from the three countries. Well, to help us on this, we joined on the line by Rejoice Mumalo, who is the spokesperson at the South African African Association of Investors. We also have Tigere Chaguta, who is the Deputy Regional Director of Campaigns at Amnesty International's Regional Office for Southern Africa. Well, let me start with you, Tigere, in terms of the response. I mean, there has been a lot of criticism around how the international community has responded as a whole. I know organizations such as yours, Amnesty International, amongst others, have been there for a while. But it seems like the, the humanitarian aid has been slow in terms of dealing with uh, this particular issue. Where are we right now on the ground in terms of what is the need at this moment? Uh, good morning, Benjamin. Um, thank you for having us once again, and good morning to your listeners. Um, the, where we are right now, Benjamin, um, is that the response is scaling up uh, in the three affected countries, um, but it has been slow in coming. Um, just to give you perspective, um, the response that is required in terms of the funding for just the emergency phase has been set by the three countries at four, about 400 million US dollars and to date um, less than 100 million dollars has been received in the three countries. Mm. It's very interesting that you're highlighting that particular issue because in our last uh, conversation together when we were looking at what is happening on the ground, we were highlighting also some of the weaknesses in terms of the coordination from the African front. And I was just reading yesterday from uh, Oxfam's uh, Pan-Africa's acting director who was reiterating some of the issues that you've highlighted in terms of the African Union's capacity to actually coordinate its and he was highlighting some of uh, the mishaps in, in that regard. But we know from uh, a SADC secretariat uh, uh, front, we've seen some um, movement in that regard. Um, we know that countries such as Uganda, Namibia, Tanzania, Angola, South Africa and Morocco have been on the forefront in terms of aid. And uh, we've been told that SADC has now given around uh, 500,000 US dollars and just last week, we saw uh, them launching a $324 million regional humanitarian appeal for funding. Uh, it seems like SADC is trying to pioneer some form of uh, aid program here. Are they winning in this regard to Gary? I think there's a change from the last time we had a conversation. Certainly, the uh, situation has changed, um, and uh, the different actors are coming to the party, as it were. But uh, this response has been slow in coming. Um, you remember when we spoke the last time, what we really emphasized was that uh, for a region such as Southern Africa, 
where uh, you know such disasters are really becoming a near annual occurrence. We expect that uh, we should be pre-positioned to respond, and uh, we should have uh, you know disaster risk management plans um, that can be quickly activated uh, when we have an occurrence such as this. Now that um, three weeks a month into such an occurrence, we start uh, to get uh, you know a, a respectable response is not enough. Um, so we are still calling for the region to ensure that we move from rhetoric to, to action in so far as um, making sure that as a region we have a disaster risk reduction, disaster risk management plans, um, uh, you know, that are robust and can be put into action as soon as uh, something like this um, is known to, to, to be approaching uh, rather than take a reactive approach to, to responding to disasters in the region. Mm. Let me bring in uh, Rejoice Mumalo, who's the spokesperson at the South African Association of Investors. Rejoice, tell us a little bit about your organization or association, how it's involved in the response to uh, this uh, huge humanitarian need in these uh, three countries. Thank you for joining us, Rejoice. Thank you for having us, Benjamin. Um, South African Association of Investors is a very small NPO. We've been operating in South Africa since 2004, um, so just dealing with, you know, rural communities and reaching out to um, communities where there is need. So what we've done so far with the Cyclone Day um, is that it actually came from a point of mobilizing ordinary South Africans um, to say, you know, as, as we see the devastation and, and, and the catastrophe that has happened, we don't just leave it up to... Um, your your um, big organizations or your government. Um, we we run it South Africans, and they really came on board last week. Last at a, at, on the twenty eighth of March, actually, we delivered um, fourteen tons of food, eight in Beira. Um, we are leaving again actually on Monday to deliver another twenty tons. Um, so we're working with the organizations on the ground that are there already assisting and they are able to give us intel as it happens in terms of which communities are, um, are in need. And so I know that um, Masita is one of the areas which we have been uh, sent a message yesterday to say, please come through to this area. There is about 39,000 people that, that that are in need of aid, that are in need of food, um, water supplies, and so forth and so on. So we are going to be going to that area and to seek us to um, deliver that aid. Mm. And as you guys have taken upon yourselves, Rejoice, to actually respond to this particular issue, how is it actually when you do actually get this particular help from ordinary citizens like you are trying to get from South Africans and then you move into the territories because you have other bigger organizations such as the Red Crosses, such as the World Food Programs and the UN. How do you coordinate your functions in that particular uh, big world of humanitarian aid? Absolutely. And I mean, that becomes one of the challenges. So how we actually um, coordinated from our side, we obviously worked with Zeko, um and with the embassies in Mozambique. We know that the guys, you know, you're um, from South Africa, you're the givers, the defense force, they've really been in in terms of um, immediate attracting of people and medical attention and so forth. So we um, we work with the INGT, which is the biggest um, disaster management organization in Mozambique. And um, so there are other smaller organizations, you know, that are there, that are on the ground. And so for us, it's, it's really about 
being able to expedite help because we know that this organization is dealing with three million people or more. Um, we are saying we're working with, with, with um, you know, there's a lot of such organizations that are on the ground, a lot of um, humanitarian organizations that have already been in the ground in Mozambique anyway, working at a smaller scale, not for disaster management things, but they have really come on board. So we work with them and we take um, volunteers from South Africa, we get there and they are plugged in uh, over there in Beira at the airport. So they get intel, they have meetings regularly, so they come back from the airport and say, listen, these are the areas that have not been attended to by the big guns. So we go in there with our volunteers and we are able to assist the children with the aid okay, that's cool. um, as it is needed with, with, with the other communities. And so um, one of the things that we've now done um, in South Africa is that we've um, mobilized the, the arts industry. So we've just um, had a... Um, a, you know, a media release yesterday with the Department of Agriculture saying that we are partnering with artists because they've got the cloud, you know. Mm-hmm. We're going to be taking a lot of um, volunteers again from that at fraternity to say, let us go over there and see how can we can be of help on the ground and assist the big organizations because there's too many people to get mm-hmm. through. Okay, let me bring in Florento Del Pinto, who is the head of emergency operations at the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent, and he's joining us from Beira, Mozambique. Florento, thank you for giving us your time as well. Thanks to you. Well, Florento, in terms of uh, that issue of what we've been talking about, the collaborative efforts that are happening from local organizations in the SADC region and also dealing with huge humanitarian organizations that work uh, on an international scale such as the Red Cross and Red Crescent. Tell us a little bit about uh, some of the issues on the ground, some of the challenges. I think it's great that you have small organizations as rejoices that are trying to find alternative communities where to help and assist. But is the need still more? I mean, we're not just dealing with one country, dealing with three countries here. No, absolutely, you're absolutely right. Um, one of the biggest challenges we had here, and that is still a bit the case, is that the overall area that has been affected by uh, these floodings and these is around four times well. So you can imagine that it has been extremely difficult to be able to identify where are the most vulnerable communities and the most affected ones. So that's why we have been talking a bit earlier about the delays uh, of the response, but this is due to this. We had to be able to do an assessment of the whole area to then be able to point out where we had to focus on. So that's why at the moment we are really focusing on all these areas that are the most affected, where we are distributing a lot of what we call non-food items, so this is shelter kits, reconstruction kits, uh, mosquito nets, and so on. Um, so this is what, what we have been seeing, but at the same time we are uh, sending so many goods to so many communities we still observe from time to time, one day to the other, that some new communities pops up that didn't receive anything yet. So these are, are the main challenges uh, we are facing at the moment. Florent, what's the biggest challenge in terms of tracking the humanitarian assistance, in terms of the communities that require the assistance? Because there seems to be a logistical problem in that regard. 
Um, I think the, the coordination overall is working pretty well. I think the cluster system here is in place and many partners uh, are buying in. Uh, the problem is, is that sometimes we do have NGOs uh, that may not be able to, to share what they are doing and that at this stage we, we cannot really know what are the gaps or the overlap. So this is an issue. Uh, but then the other issue is the access to the areas. So the problem is that even if sometimes we know that there is a village that has not been uh, served any, any, any partner, how do we get there? And sometimes the, the road cannot be... Uh, open, we need to have air access, so this means helicopters, it's very costly uh, and it's very complicated. So the access remains one of the most difficult areas and also the spread uh, of the disaster. It's so, such a big area that it's difficult to map out every single community uh, that has been affected at, at, at a very small level. All right, so I'm going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, I would like to look at uh, the reconstruction of these communities. I was uh, on News24, which is a South Africa news website, and uh, they had some very interesting images of uh, broken dams, broken communities, how the reconstruction is still trying to actually clear roads for access into some communities in Zimbabwe. These images were mainly focusing on uh, the Zimbabwean effect. And some sometimes you, we forget that reconstruction is also some an element of this particular after effect of uh, devastation, such as the one that we've seen, such as Cyclone Idai. We look at what's needed in, in that regard, actually bringing back the dignity of some of these communities. And I think that's an important part of the humanitarian work that's been done, sometimes by NGOs that are not well known. Uh, but uh, we'll look at that after this break. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it's one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1,000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1,000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1,000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C. on Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Yeah. 
Well, you are listening to African Dialogue right now with me, Benjamin Mushatama, right here on Channel Africa. This is where we try to contextualize some of the big issues, bring some of the conversations back into the center of the discussions in our media space. And uh, today we're looking at uh, the issue of Cyclone Idai, the impact and also what is needed in these three countries that were affected, which is Mozambique, Malawi and Zimbabwe. And if you're just joining us now, we have on the line Florento Del Pinto is the head of emergency operations at the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent. And he's joining us via Skype uh, in Beira in Mozambique. We also have Tigere Chaguta, who is uh, the deputy regional director of campaigns at Amnesty International. And he is uh, representing the regional office for Southern Africa. And we have Rejoice Ngumal, who's the spokesperson who is uh, part of an organization that's also trying to pay its little part in terms of responding to the need for these three countries. And uh, she represents the South African Association of Investors. Now, together, let me come to you in this part of the conversation, especially in terms of still the need in terms of uh, funding to this humanitarian crisis. From your perspective, can you give us a lowdown or what still needs to be done? Uh, because we know already the World Bank has uh, highlighted the fact that, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of money that's still required. And it says that uh, the three countries still collectively need around two billion U.S. dollars for a recovery. What are your thoughts? So, in terms of what still needs to be done, we see that um, you know there are a lot of um, um, people who um, is still in uh, temporary shelters at the moment. A number of uh, you know thousands of people who um, also still living in very precarious conditions outside of um, the the centers that have been set up. So we still see quite a number of, um, you know, rights to food, water, um, health and education, which are still at risk among uh, thousands of people that have been affected. So these are the areas where, you know, the, the, the funds that have been requested, at least for this phase, um, which is still, um, uh, you know, a phase where the agencies are looking to attend to essential needs of people. Um, we still need uh, quite a lot of uh, investment into those areas. Um, so you still need, uh, you know, there are people who are in shelters who are reporting, and we've got testimonies of this, that, uh, you know, there's uh, inadequate food in some of these areas. Food is arriving in their localities, but it's on the market and they cannot afford it. So you still need, um, uh, you know, food, uh, adequate food in the shelters, adequate food for people who are outside of temporary shelters. Um, uh, emergency health kits, uh, you need um, the kits for education and the like. So we are still in a phase where people's basic needs have to be met. Beyond this, the recovery and reconstruction will require massively more than you know what has been defined currently as what is required for people in the immediate. And you've quoted figures from the World Bank speaking to $2 billion or perhaps more. 
And let me come to you, Rejoice, because I think it's also interesting that as an organization, you guys try to find the alternative spaces where there might be a need. From your viewpoint, you say you're still pushing a campaign to actually garner more assistance from um, South Africa's uh, front uh, in an informal um, group, which is just ordinary citizens in the country. Uh, What do you think is important right now in terms of the kind of help that is needed and that type of things that you guys are trying to get together for the people of Mozambique because that's where you guys are focusing right now. Yes, um, we are actually focusing on the three countries. Um, we have done Mozambique twice, but then um, the next trip is going to be going to Zimbabwe. So okay. the action definitely is food because um, the food that has been supplied to people is not enough to last, uh, for example, a month, you know. Um, so, for example, in the area which we are going, uh, of Mafambisa, we know that they did receive food um, uh, two weeks ago. However, they have now run out. So we've got those um, areas where people are camping out, but also the areas where people are still in some kind of shelters, but they've lost everything. We're looking for things like um, kitchen utensils, you know, pots where people can actually cook, because we've been collecting all this eight million, million rice and whatever, but then where, do, where are the people supposed to cook it in? You know, um, so we're looking at really trying to rebuild and um, give them essentials like kitchen, um, like blankets, like baby clothing, um, especially for the kids, you know, your dried nestum, like you call it nestum, is a, a brand really. Um, so, that, yeah, so food is a basic need and water. We're looking for water, um, sanitation, um, we're looking for toiletries, and, and those are the immediate things that we are looking at at the moment. And I think um, the need going forward for sustainability, we'll then have to review and revise once we know that people have been fed and people have gotten medical um, attention and the toiletries and clothing. Mm. And in terms of reconstruction, Florento, I mean, this is a big task. Is it going to be just a government um responsibility or will it also be in the interests of humanitarian organizations to also assist in in that regard the, the government will definitely be uh, leading this, this overall reconstruction process and us as humanitarian actor will really try to uh, contribute to these efforts in a dignity way and of course based on any kind of our standards we have to be for example to anything has to be voluntary and, and so on. What we are looking at at, um, at the Red Cross at the moment is to really try to, of course, scale up this relief intervention that we have been doing for the last weeks, but at the same time doing what we call the, the, the recovery part, that is recreating the conditions that will allow people to come back to their own communities, that's the neighborhoods, that's the villages, for them to be able to come back in a more resilient community where they will have the basic service in water, in access to sanitation, for example, but as well in terms of livelihood. More than 700,000 of hectares have been destroyed uh, in terms of uh, cultivation and harvest possibilities. So we need to be able to target and, and target this kind of intervention to recreate the condition for people to be able to restart their lives on a, on a longer term. And Florence, what would that um, program entail? especially from you, I mean, what would you have to do? In, what are you guys doing as uh, the International Federation of Red, Red Cross and Red Crescent to actually do that? Because it sounds like a huge task. 
it, it is a huge task and, and thanks for asking because for example we, you were also touching on, on the lack of funds and of course this task is so big that we will have to focus on certain uh, communities, certain villages, certain neighborhoods but we will not be able to reach everyone. We will try to deliver uh, the, the, the basic services so this is for example recreating the access to water, uh, rebuilding some latrines because in this area here people are definitely using latrines so we need to recreate this condition, rebuild those latrines with the people that are already living there, but we also need to see how we can contribute to recreating those livelihoods. So this will be with specific programs where we can distribute some seeds, where we can distribute some tools or livestock uh, if needed. And then there is the shelter component where here we will distribute at the very initial phase some kits for people to, to, to build up a kind of a shelter. And on the second round, we're going to cover and try to build with them and to encourage the local community to rebuild what they were having before with some enhanced uh, capacity. So this will bring, for example, some specific expertise to still respect the traditional uh, construction but with small improvement that can make a big difference on the ground. Okay, together let me come back to you because before the break I was speaking about restoring even the dignity of people and that's Partly in terms of what Florent is highlighting in terms of people can go to uh, latrines, just restoring people's capacity maybe to rebuild their homes and um, school facilities, um, the health systems. There's just a lot when you think about um, practical things that can be done to restore the dignity of people. And I think that's some, sometimes going to take longer than we, we think it, it would will. Certainly. Um, you know, we, we are really looking to the uh, impact of a cycling um, uh, guy being felt for months to come. Uh, just in terms of food security alone, you will know that um, the, this cycling has come at a time when um, people were near harvest. So we are expecting that um, uh, food insecurity is going to be a challenge that um, stays with the affected uh, populations at least until um, uh, the next harvest period, um, or at least until uh, such a time people are able to go onto the market uh, and access some um, adequate uh, provision. Uh, that in itself is very difficult because we are talking about an impoverished community um, and food on the market is um, uh, often uh, more expensive than they can afford. That is food alone. Um, we are also looking at um, just the ability to access um, health care. We know that a lot of our health facilities have been destroyed, schools have been destroyed, um, and all of these um, not facilities that will be up and running in the near future. So we expect that we'll be having a lot of temporary services that, um, um, that are provided. Uh, how long people will stay in shelters is also an issue, um, uh, whether uh, governments and through international communities uh, will be able to provide for people to go into, um, uh, you know, what you term adequate housing still remains to be seen in terms of, you know, when that can happen. So restoring people's dignity is really going to be, um, you know, something that, uh, that's a challenge for the region as we go forward. And we expect that in the coming months, we've got um, hundreds of thousands of people that will still need um, assistance. Um, and how that assistance is going to be provided then becomes very important um, to ensure that we don't have the challenges that, you know, that Rejoice uh, was referring to earlier, 
uh, going into um, extending into the months uh, ahead of us. And also, there was a big story in the beginning of um, this month um, together, whereby there were individuals that were accused of diverting Mozambique aid. And I know that sometimes a very, very critical thing when outsiders look at humanitarian work. How do we avoid those kind of situations where there is a diversion of donations and aid? Um, that's, a, that's certainly you know, an issue that, um, that continues to come up when uh, we have uh, you know, such, such incidents and, and, and such responses. And I think um, 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 one of our guests um, earlier spoke about the need for, for better coordination, for better information sharing, um, which is something that I think really needs to be improved um, if we are going to, you know, to win um, the war against um, the criminal activity that creeps in during such times, um, where we've got a number of actors uh, through goodwill, um, you know, involved in uh, distribution, in sourcing and distribution of humanitarian aid. Um, I think obviously also uh, making sure that uh, law enforcement agents are part of the coordinated response um, becomes quite key in these instances. All right, Rejoice, as was highlighted by myself and together, that this is not going to be a short-term thing. And I'm sure as an association that's helping out, you've been thinking about that or how long can we continue to assist and how long yeah. can we stay in this process as a small organization? How have you been neg- navigating your thoughts around that notion and that reality? Yeah, so that's correct. I think at this point, we, we obviously are going to be waiting for um, intel as it happens from the lead organizations and government. Um, but what we are doing from our side is that we have a six-month plan, and during those six months, it's really going to be continued activations, activations in terms of um, raising those funds, but then looking into building the community. So um, from a smaller scale, we will then coordinate with where the rebuilding begins to happen. We'll bring in our manpower and we'll bring in um, whatever funds that we are going to be raising in the next um, six months so that we can start um, choosing what community we're going to rebuild. And I think that will be to, um, selected according to you know, which people are in the most dire um, situation that really needs um, to be built, whether, you know, um, organizations such as um, your GCIS and GCIS or government are going to decide to say these people in this area, this is what they need. So we will coordinate our efforts with that, but we will definitely be continuing. Um, and we aim to be in um, for the next year at least so that we can leave people with a little bit of a sustainable um, solution. Mm. Key word that was used by Rejoice there, Florento, that the aid has to also be sustainable. As the your organization, I mean, what are you guys thinking in terms of sustainability, in terms of being in these communities on a long term? Because I know sometimes that's also a challenge in terms of aid capacity and resources and finances. Florento, are you there with me? Yes, I'm here. Um, yeah, definitely. So this is a, an excellent question as well. Um, of course, the, the, the aid, as it is 
being delivered now is not sustainable. And it doesn't aim at being sustainable because we really have to deliver some life-saving uh, food and, and goods to the people. Afterwards, we need to be able to switch the, the, the model of intervention and not rely on uh, bringing a lot of goods or relying on a lot of international delegates, but to really rely on the capacities we have on the ground, on the, the traditional manners of doing things. Mm. And, and of course, our role is really to build up sustainable solutions though. So we, we still need to have some solutions that are sustainable in water and sanitation and so on. But our appeal for the, for the Red Cross here uh, is, is looking at a, at least a two-year time frame because that's how we see us being able to, to really implement this kind of sustainable services without uh, jeopardizing this kind of longer-term views. And then afterwards, we hope that this solution will be really embedded in the community and will be autonomous to be able to be really sustainable. Well, we're going to wrap it up there. Thank you to our guests and for their assistance. And we'll keep uh, um, contacting them and checking up on how they're doing in the work uh, that they're embarking on in these uh, three countries. Thank you to Rejoice Numalo, spokesperson at the South African Association of Investors. Thank you to Florento Del Pinto, who is the head of emergency operations at the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent. And he was joining us from Beira in Mozambique. Uh, last but not least, thanks as well to Jigera Jaguta who is the Deputy Regional Director of Campaigns at Amnesty International's Regional Office for Southern Africa. Thank you all for your time. Thank you, Benjamin.